Good morning and welcome to First Presbyterian Church. We're glad that you're here with us on this second Sunday of Advent. I just have two announcements to make before we begin our worship service. The first one being that Midge asked me uh, to clarify that the Joy Group will be meeting this coming Thursday at 2 o'clock, not at 10 o'clock as it says in your bulletin, at 2 o'clock. That's set in stone as far as I know. And uh, uh, the other one being that, of course, tonight is our... Christmas Carol Candlelight Service, that's C to the third, if my calculations are correct. If we called it a Christmas Candlelight Carol Concert, it would be C what? Cubed. I think that's right, isn't it? To the fourth. Cubed is third, right? I'm terrible at math. Uh, Regardless, the choir has been working diligently along with our choir director to prepare uh, for this service tonight. It's at 5 p.m., and I'd strongly encourage you to attend. Be glad to see you there. And uh, again, it's almost Christmas. We're getting closer and closer. So let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship the living and true God. Good morning. It's good for us to be here because there is good news for each one of us. Would you please stand for our call to worship from Luke chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold... I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Would you please me? Lord, what great news that you bring us here to rehearse, to hear again, to live out. So we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit this morning, that you would fill us with your Spirit so that we would be overflowing with praise and adoration for you. Help us to worship you this morning with all of our strength, our mind, our spirit, our soul. Lord, you are good, and you've been good to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you would remain standing, we'll sing our first hymn, which is hymn 214, Angels We Have Heard on High, hymn, hymn 214. Let's sing. It's good to follow up from that hymn with the Confession of Faith with the Apostles' Creed. So in your bulletins, you'll find the Confession of Faith this morning, and I'll ask you uh, to recite it with me. So, believer, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 5. And many people across the world recognize the second week of Advent as being uh, the week of peace, or the theme of peace. And you'll see that in this passage, as well as in our time of prayer. So this is Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Would you please pray with me? Dear Father, we come before you this morning. We know and remember and learn again from your word that we have peace because you made a covenant with your eternal son before we even existed to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Lord Jesus, you took upon yourself the affliction of the Father in our place. The judgment and curse became yours, though you didn't deserve it, and all of this brought us peace. Dear Lord, we remember that you have given us peace here and now, and we look forward to that peace to come when the new heavens and the new earth will bring about a time when wars won't even be a distant memory when our hearts will be fully and finally at peace in your presence, where human striving and ambition will no longer mix with selfishness and deceit. God, where we can create and work and plant, grow and explore without the warring sinful hearts within us. So Lord, we pray that you would give us a heavenly vision for peace at work within us and in this world and in this church and in this town right now. Many of us would say not at peace today, whether in our hearts or in our families or work or with our finances, but Jesus, you invite us to come closer in, higher up, because you will give us peace. You will give us rest. And as we're about to pray in the Lord's Prayer, would you bring your peace down now through us so that the world would know that you are its source through your church. God, it is good to remember uh, the prayers and needs of your people each week. We give thanks for Landis and Josiah's wedding and for the celebration that took place yesterday. We pray you would bless their marriage, that you would bless them and give them the support that they need in their marriage throughout the years through their friends and their family. God, we give thanks for Laura and Marilyn's recovery. We give you praise for the good reports and the progress that they're making, the strength that they're finding. We pray that you would continue to, to bring them quick recovery, bring them their strength back. God, we are grateful for the choir, for the time that they have spent over months preparing for this evening. So, Lord, we pray that you would be part of that service in every way, that you would remove any technical difficulties, that you would strengthen the voices of each person in the choir, and that you would make that a time simply of joy, a blessing, as we hear and as they sing. We pray now, Lord, that you would lead us in the prayer that you taught your disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite you now to stand for our next hymn, which is the first Noel, and you'll find it in your bulletin, um, not in your hymnals. So take a bulletin, we'll stand, and we'll sing the first Noel.
You may be seated. At this time, we'll take up our tithes and offerings this morning as we give back as God has called us to do. Let's be 
Please pray with me. Dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we offer you these tithes and offerings. We, we give them to you. We dedicate them to you. We pray that you would multiply them and use them to great effect in our church and in this town and across the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd invite you to turn with me now to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 39 through 52, which is not a proper uh, narrative of Christ's infancy, but rather of his childhood. Uh, Before I read it, let me pray for us. Father, send out your light, send out your truth, let them lead us. Send your Holy Spirit now, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39, hear God's word. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And this ends this reading of God's holy word. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, Radio Lab, and they were telling, I think it was called the the boy man, and they were telling the story of a gentleman who experienced early puberty. And so when he was three years old, he was already already had the development of a six-year-old. And by the time he was 12 years old, he already had the development of an 18-year-old. I mean, he was shaving as a small child. And so when he was 12, the story went, uh, though he was, you know, very large for his age and had facial hair... Kids were beating him up. He was getting beat up at school all the time. And you ask, well, how can somebody who's bigger than all the kids get beat up? And his answer was that he was big on the outside, but he wasn't very big on the inside. He had physical stature, but he didn't have emotional or intellectual, uh, the intellectual strength of someone who would properly be his size. So what Joseph and Mary are having to deal with in our passage is Jesus at the age of 12 But Jesus is very big on the inside. He's very intelligent. He's reasoning with these teachers of the law, and he's able to hold his own, and they don't understand it. And so what I want to talk about from our passage, three things, specifically about Mary, because she's the conversation with partner with Jesus here. What Mary didn't understand, what Mary did understand, 
and some encouragement that we can get from understanding both these things, what she did understand, what she didn't understand. So here's number one, what Mary didn't understand. So the passage tells the story of Jesus and his family going to the temple in Jerusalem to observe the Passover. It says they did this every year. In verse 42, it calls it their custom. But this particular year was significant precisely because Jesus was 12. So why does it matter that he was 12? Well, in Jewish tradition, a boy begins to become a man at age 13. This would later be called bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the commandment. In Jewish tradition, that's the age when you become accountable for knowing the law of God, obeying the law of God, and it's when you really begin to learn how to be an adult according to Jewish tradition. So because that happened at age 13, age 12 for a boy was very important because that was the year the boy would begin to go through his apprenticeship toward becoming a man. Tim Keller says, the boy would have, and we're talking about Jesus here, entered into an intensive relationship with his father when his father apprenticed him in his calling as an adult man. He would have likely apprenticed Jesus as a carpenter, but also he would have done intensive religious instruction. This would be the year the father would intensely focus on explaining the Passover to his son and explaining the law of God. This was the year Jesus would have been spending a lot of time, more time than usual, walking with his father, talking with his father, listening to him, learning from him, watching him. But in the passage, instead of walking home with his father, he's left behind. It says in verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, culture was different then, but at least where I grew up, if, if mom says, your father and I, that probably means you're in deep trouble. She's not happy. But it's more than just saying, your father and I, why did you leave your father and I? She's essentially saying, Jesus, you left your big man. You're supposed to be walking with him, talking with him, learning from him. We've got this long journey, and you've got your opportunity to do so. And here you are, you've, you're left behind, and you're scared and silly. We've been worried sick about you. And that sets the stage for Jesus' response. It almost looks disrespectful. Verse 49. Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now the word house there isn't present in the original Greek, but it's implied. The idea is I'm about my father's business. I'm in my father's presence. I'm in my father's house. And Jesus is saying, I know my father and I, my earthly father and I, weren't together. But I was and I am walking with my heavenly father. I'm learning from my father. I'm doing business with my father, my true father. That's why I'm in his house. That's why I'm in the temple. Jesus has apprenticed himself to God the father. And the astonishing thing is I mean, that he says, my father's house, God, my father. We take it for granted that God is our father because we've all, you know, all of us who are grown up in the church have been praying the Lord's prayer so long. We take it for granted that God is our father. But for Jewish people, this is outrageous. They didn't call God father. Now there were our passages in the Old Testament that use illustrations that liken God to a father who cares for his children. But this wasn't part of their personal vocabulary when they spoke to God. So when Jesus calls God his father, this is an astounding thing. And he's calling back to what the angel said to Mary in Luke 135. She said, this son that you're going to give birth to is going to be called the son of God. Why didn't Mary understand it? You know, I often think many of you do at Christmas about the song, Mary, Did You Know? And that song gets a lot of flack. I saw a pastor post once on, on Facebook, Mary, did you know? Yes, she knew. The angel told her. And she did know. But she didn't 
No, at the same time. It says in verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. What's this stuff about God the Father? What's this stuff about being in the Father's house, being about the Father's business? They don't understand the implications of Jesus calling God his Father. You know, we have, fortunately, the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, which shows us that by calling God his Father, Jesus was saying that he is God. That he was sent to this earth as God's salvation project. The second person of the Trinity coming to save God's people. In John 5.18, when Jesus called God his Father, the religious leaders knew they understood exactly what he was saying. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They viewed it as a, as a killable offense to call God your father. Because when you call God your father, you're saying that you are God. How? How? Because a son shares the father's nature. He shares the father's DNA. He shares all of the father's wealth and possessions and business. He's an heir of everything. He's not lesser than his father. He's equal to his father. That's the way the Jewish people understood this. So who is this 12-year-old boy in this passage who is amazing people with this knowledge of the scriptures and how big he is on the inside. And he's calling himself the son of the father. He's setting himself up as equal to God, even as a 12-year-old. You know, the only words recorded of Jesus before he's approximately 30 years old is him saying, I must be about my father's business. And so Joseph and Mary struggled with this. And his enemies and his disciples would struggle with this throughout his ministry. How could a boy, how could a man claim that God was his father? It's because he is God. Because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God taking on flesh, as the hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. As the Nicene Creed puts it, he is, Jesus is God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Mary struggled to grasp Jesus' relationship to the Father. That's what she didn't yet understand. That's number one. Number two, what did Mary understand very clearly in our passage? Now, for a Jewish audience, the claim that God was Jesus' Father would be the most astounding thing about the passage but probably not for modern Christians. For modern Christians, the most amazing thing in this passage is Jesus' humanity. Not just that he's God, but that he's man. Now Mary didn't have any problems understanding this. She gave birth to him. She changed his diapers. She cleaned spit up you know, off of her tunic probably. Verse 40 calls Jesus a child. Verse 43 calls Jesus the boy. The passage is showing us this person who is coming, this God who is coming, he's also fully a human being. He's a little boy here in the passage. He probably doesn't even have facial hair yet. And notice how the passage is bracketed by a similar phrase that's used at the beginning and the end. In verse 40, the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. And then verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You get the picture. Jesus is growing. He's not an infant anymore. He's become a young man. He's a child. He's going to be a teenager soon. Eventually, he's going to become a fully grown man. He's learning social skills. He's growing in wisdom. He's growing in stature. Now, this begs a major question. How can someone who is the Son of God who is God in the flesh, possibly need to grow? And the answer is clear. Jesus, yes, is fully God, but he's also fully man. Fully man. The incarnation means Jesus took on flesh. He joined his divine nature to human nature in one person. And Jesus didn't just parachute down from heaven, fully formed as a grown man. He came as a baby who grows into a boy, who grows into a man. Now you could spend the rest of your life thinking about the implications of that. 
Because it means, you know, Jesus was like us in every respect, yet without sin. That's the only difference. He never sinned. But whatever temptations a baby faces, I don't know, hogging the toys, you know, screaming uncontrollably to get what you want, I don't know what temptations a baby faces, but whatever they are, Jesus faced them. Whatever temptations a toddler faces, Jesus faced them. Whatever temptations a boy faces, boy, there's a lot of temptations a boy faces. I remember, believe it or not, I can remember what it was like to be a boy. And uh, I remember one time, probably when I was 10 or 11 years old, close to the age Jesus was in this passage, I got the idea in my mind that I would make a stated goal of creating the most flammable substance ever known to mankind. <laughs> stated goal. And I tried. You know, transmission fluid, oil, anything I could find in the shed. And I set that puppy on fire in a barrel. And it went, Poof. And I thought to myself, well, there's only one thing to do. i got to kick this over. And I kicked it over, and guess what? The yard caught on fire. And I thought, I've got to spray water on this to put it out. Guess what? Didn't work. It burned itself out pretty quick, thankfully. And I'm, kids don't do this, by the way. But I'm saying, you think about, you, you think about your boyhood. Think about the temptations you face. Think about the stupid decisions you made. Think about how you disobeyed your parents. Think about how you did things you absolutely regret. Jesus faced every temptation a boy faced. And then, of course, all the way as a teenager. Every temptation a teenager faces. That may be worse than boyhood. I don't know. Because our mind is developing and we can come up with more intricate schemes of all the crazy things that we can do. But Jesus faced all those temptations. And all the way into manhood. It says, Jesus grew. And again, in verse 48, he increased in stature. How can God grow? How can the man who is God increase in wisdom? It's because he's not just God. He's God who became an infant. Frederick Buechner said, you know, he became so fragile, you could hold his skull in your hand and crush it. He became a tiny little infant. John Calvin said, when the apostle declares that in all things Jesus was made like unto his brethren, and was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin, he no doubt includes that Christ's soul was subject to ignorance. There is only one difference between us and him, and that weakness which press, those weaknesses which press upon us by a necessity which we cannot avoid were undertaken by him voluntarily and of his own accord. We didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose to be teenagers. Jesus actually chose to go through this experience for us. And here's an amazing statement in our passage in verse 51. It says, he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Submissive to his parents. I couldn't live up to that as a kid. Could you? Can you imagine the temptations? You're the God man, the God boy at this point. And your, your parents say, clean up your room. And you could snap your fingers and do it. But you don't. You submit. And you do it like a normal human being. Now you imagine. I have kids in, in more advanced math classes now than I was ever interested in growing up, as evidenced by the announcements this morning. You imagine Jesus working on his math. And Mary's trying to help him. And... It, She's like, no, Jesus, do this. It's like, Mom, I invented numbers. I invented geometry. But he didn't do that. He lived as a normal human being. He grew in wisdom and stature. He grew intellectually just as he grew physically. The God who knew everything chose to learn it all as a boy. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary in a race to get Jesus to say their name first whose name is God going to learn first the one who spoke the universe into existence became a child 
who had to learn to say, Abba, Father. The one who changed water into wine had to have his diaper changed. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power had to learn to hold up his little head as a baby. The everlasting arms had to learn to crawl. The one who walked on water had to learn how to walk. The Alpha and the Omega had to learn the alphabet. The Word incarnate had to learn to read. The one who gave the law had to learn to obey his own law. All that more, just in that one phrase, Jesus grew. And Mary understood that Jesus was fully human. Do you understand that? Here's the third point. What encouragement can we get from this teaching of Luke that Jesus is both fully God and fully man that we can take home with us today? Well, the first thing is this. We have to fight to hold on to this teaching of the full deity and humanity of Christ. It has been a temptation throughout the history of the church to forget this, to let go of this. And that's where all the heresies, Christological heresies, Trinitarian heresies, as the theologian calls them, have come in. You know, one of the earliest heresies was called Arianism. And it taught the idea that Jesus could not have been eternally God. How could a man eternally be God? Because how can a man be eternal? The, the church fought so hard against Arianism we had creeds that came as a result of us to, to, of it to establish that Jesus was fully God. We fought so hard to fight for Jesus being fully God. It's led to the temptation to believe that he is fully God, but he's not fully man. I mean, you even see this in some of the Christmas carols that we sing. I had a friend uh, years ago who preached a sermon called Away in a Manger. And you know, Away in a Manger, it says, uh, The little Lord Jesus... No crying he makes. No crying he You ever met a child who didn't cry? The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And so my friend took us his text for Away in a Manger, John eleven thirty five, which says, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. We need to remember, Jesus was not Superman. He is God, but he's also man. Eternally man. Now why does that matter? What's the encouragement of remembering that Christ is both God and man at the same time? Well, talk to kids. Kids, when you are tempted to disobey your parents, when you think your parents are dead wrong, and sometimes they are, remember that Jesus, who was perfect, willingly submitted to his parents. Teenagers, when you get a pimple before picture day, like, remember, Jesus Christ came and became fully man, experienced everything a teenager experiences. You remember the story, I've told this before. I heard, a, you know, a word of faith preacher years ago say that Jesus didn't have pimples. Why? Because he was the spotless lamb of God. See, that's the whole thing, exactly what I'm talking about. Forgetting that Jesus was fully man. Mothers and fathers, when that baby is crying and you can't get it to be quiet, remember Jesus wept. And when we don't feel like we have anyone who can understand us, Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he it was and is a man. He can all, And aside from that, he can always hear us because he's also God. So hold on to his deity and also to his humanity. Here's another encouragement from understanding who Jesus is, especially about him growing in wisdom and stature. It illustrates the permanence of his humanity. And see, I, had, I took a Christology class in seminary. And everybody you talked to who took that class would say, that was the best class in seminary because you took a whole semester just to think about Jesus. Just thinking about who he is. Thinking about what he does. We don't think about it nearly as much as we think we do. Because the permanence of his humanity is something I hadn't really put much thought to. You know, he is eternally God. But he's also committed himself to be, as G.K. Chesterton put it, the everlasting man. Jesus doesn't go halfway. He's all in. When he took on flesh, it wasn't a test drive. 
He was taking it on permanently. You know, it, like there's that line in the sand lot that everybody grew up in my era remembers. The question is, how long does the beast, the dog, have to be in chains? And the answer is forever. Forever. That's how long Jesus has committed to take on our flesh. Forever. That's how committed he is to you. He's still, as he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead, he still shares your hair, your eyes, your skin, your humanity. That's how committed he is to you. You know, there was an E60 documentary a number of years ago called The Number. And it was about a little boy named Logan. And he died at the age of 12, unfortunately, but before he did, when he was two years old, his parents realized that something was wrong with his vision as he grew. Three years old, they take him to a doctor, and the doctor shows his parents the MRI. It was a brain tumor behind his right ear the size of a grapefruit. At six, he goes through six years of radiation and surgeries, but they can't get rid of it. You know, what was his hope in all of this? His hero was Tom Brady. He thought about Tom Brady all the time. He was a super fan. He wore a Tom Brady jersey every time he went to the hospital to remind him he needed to be strong, like his hero, Tom Brady. This is how he described Tom Brady in the documentary. He said, I adore him. He is greatness. He is awesome. I love him. He adored Tom Brady so much that when this boy, Logan, was going in for his sixth brain surgery in seven years, he made a strange request from the doctor. He asked the doctor, would you engrave Tom Brady's number, the number 12, into my skull? And they did. And a reporter asked him, you engrave the number 12 into your skull. What do you think this might mean to Tom Brady? Logan's answer was that a fan liked him so much, he decided to have his number carved into his skull. Why do I tell that story? Just, we have a God who loves us so much that he took on our humanity so that he could carve us into his own being. Behold, your names are written in the palms of my hands, he says in the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he appears to Jesus, when Jesus appears to Doubting Thomas after the resurrection, what does he say? After the resurrection, put your fingers in the scars on my hand. Stick your hand in my side. Stop doubting. Believe. Jesus has willingly borne not only our, our humanity, but even our scars for all of eternity. My friend Dot Arthur at Forest Grove Presbyterian Church loved to sing the old gospel song, Scars in the Hands of Jesus. It says, the only thing in heaven that was made by man, the scars in the hands of Jesus. Why did Jesus take on our humanity, forever take on our humanity? Why does he still say, have our numbers engraved into his hands and feet? And it's so like him, we can call God our Father now. And we can be about our Father's business. He became the everlasting man so that we could have an everlasting relationship with his Father. Now here's the last thing. We need to hold on to his deity and his humanity. We need to remember that his humanity is everlasting and that he bears his wounds even now in the presence of God the Father. The last thing. If Jesus is so committed to us that he became a man eternally, why do we still doubt? Why do we still question? What can we do when we doubt and want to question him? Well, Craig Satterley says, we can learn from Mary. She says, what are you doing, Jesus? Why did you leave us? We were worried sick. And then we learn from Jesus' answer. Why were you searching for me? Why were you searching for me? You know. You know I must be about my father's business. You know, in the, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion, the Christ figure in the story, he's always disappearing. And then he's just showing back up. And you know, you're in times of trouble. It's winter and never Christmas. Always winter and never Christmas. Where's Aslan? What is he doing? 
And the refrain is, you know, he'll show up. He'll show up when he needs to. I used to have a boss like that. I had a boss who we, you know, you wouldn't see him for days. He, he was nowhere to be found. But it's like when a crisis happened, he just showed up. Was, you know what? He was a really good boss, actually. That's Jesus. You know, there's times in your life when you feel like, where is he? Where is he gone? And right when you need him, he just shows up. But here's the answer from, from the text. When you don't know what Jesus is doing, here's the answer of this text. Don't you know? He's doing his father's business. Now, you may feel like he's not doing everything you want in life, but he is about his father's business. He's about the business of saving souls, of expanding the kingdom of God. Men, women, and children. He's not a tame lion. He shatters our expectations, just like he did Mary and Joseph. He's not always going to do exactly what we want, but he's always going to give us exactly what we need. Aslan's always going to show up exactly when we need him. Let's pray. Father, may we treasure up these things and ponder them in our hearts. We cannot comprehend. We are not big enough on the inside to comprehend all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us and is doing for us even at this moment. But we thank you for what you've revealed to us in your word. We thank you that he was willing to become a man, a child, a boy, a teenager, that he might face every temptation we face and then conquer sin, death, hell, and the grave. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Enlarge our hearts that we might praise your name. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 207. Good Christian men, rejoice. Now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.